Chapter 14 of A Red Wallflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter 14. Snuggles. Esther sat, swallowed up of excitement, poring over this letter longer than she knew. Whether it gave her most pain or pleasure, she could not have told. Pleasure came in a great wave at first, and then pricks of pain began to make themselves felt, as if the pleasure wave had been full of sharp points. Her cheeks glowed, her eyes sent looks, or rather one steady look, at the paper, which would certainly have bored it through or set it on fire if moral qualities had taken to themselves material power. At last, remembering that she must not stay too long, she folded the letter up and returned to her father. He had taken his letter coolly, she saw, and gone back to his book. How far his world was from hers! Absolutely, Pitt's letter was nothing to him. "'Well, my dear,' said he, after a while observing her, "'what does he say?' "'I suppose he told you, Papa, what happened to him?' "'No, he did not. He only told me what is happening to the world. He has gone to Europe at a grand time.' "'What is happening to the world, Papa?' "'My dear, that arch-usurper and mischief-maker, Napoleon Bonaparte, has been beaten by the Allied armies at Leipzig, driven back over the Rhine. It's glorious news. I wish I was with Lord Wellington.' "'To fight, Papa?' "'Certainly. I would like to have a hand in what is going on. If I could,' he added, with a sigh. "'But, Papa, I should think fighting was not pleasant work.' Woman's fighting is not. Is men's fighting, Papa, pleasant? It is pleasant to have a blow at a rascal. Ah, well, my fighting days are over. What does Pitt tell you? About his voyage, Papa, nothing else. Are you going to let me hear it? Esther would a little rather have kept it to herself, simply because it was so precious to her. However, this question was a command and she read the letter aloud to her father. With that the matter was disposed of, in all but her own mind, for the final result of the letter was to stir up all the pain the writer's absence had caused, and to add to it some new elements of aggravation. Esther had not realized, till those letters came, how entirely the writer of them had gone out of her world. In love and memory she had in a sort still kept him near, Without vision she had yet been not fully separated from him. Now these pictures of the other world and of Pitt's life in it came like a bright, sheer blade severing the connection which had until then subsisted between her life and his. Yes, he was in another world, and there was no connection any longer. He had not forgotten her yet, but he would forget. How should he not? How could he help it? In the rich sweep of variety and change in eager action which filled his experience, what thought could he have any more for that quiet figure on the sofa, or this lonely little child, whose life contained no interest whatever? Or how could his thoughts return at all to this dull room, where everything remained with no change from morning to night and from one week to another? Always Colonel Gainsborough there on the sofa, always that same green cloth covering the table in the middle of the floor, and the view of the snow-covered garden and road and fields outside the windows, with those everlasting pollard poplars along the fence. While Europe was in commotion, 
and armies rolling their masses over it, and Napoleon fleeing, and Lord Wellington chasing, and every breath was full of eagerness and hope and triumph and purpose in that world without. Esther fell back into a kind of despair. It was gone from her. Now she realized that fact thoroughly. Not only gone in person, but moved far off in mind. Maybe he might write again, once or twice. Very likely he would, for he was kind. But his life was henceforth separated from Seaforth and from all the other life that had its home there. The old cry for comfort began to sound in Esther's heart with a terrible urgency. Where was it to come from? And as the child had only one possible outlook for comfort, she began to set her face that way in a kind of resolute determination. That is, she began to shut herself up with her Bible and search it as a man who is poor searches for a hid treasure, or as one who is starving looks for something to eat. Nobody knew. She shut herself up and carried on her search alone, and troubled nobody with questions. Nobody ever noticed the air of the child. The grave, faraway look of her eyes, the pale face, the unnaturally quiet demeanor. At least nobody noticed it to any purpose. Mrs. Barker did communicate to Christopher her belief that that child was moping herself into ninety years old, and they would both agree that she ought to be sent to school. A girl don't grow just like one of my cabbages, said Mr. Bounder. That'll make a head for itself. Miss Esther's got a head, put in Mrs. Barker. Twon't be solid in that, if it ain't looked after, retorted her brother. I don't suppose you understand the natural world, though. What's the colonel thinking about? That ain't your and my business, Christopher. But I do worry myself about Miss Esther's face, the way I sees it sometimes. The colonel, it is true, did not see it as Mrs. Barker saw it. Not but that he might, if he had ever watched her. But he did not watch. It never occurred to him but that everything went right with Esther. When she made him his tea, she was attentive and womanly. When she read aloud to him, she read intelligently. And in the reciting of the few lessons she did with her father, there was always no fault to find. How could the colonel suppose anything was wrong? Life had become a dull, sad story to him. Why should it be different to anybody else? Nay, the colonel would not have said that in words. It was rather the supine condition into which he had lapsed than any conclusion of his intelligence. But the fact was, he had no realization of the fact that a child's life ought to be bright and gay. He accepted Esther's sedate, unvarying tone and manner as quite the right thing, and found it suit him perfectly. Nobody else saw the girl, except at church. The family had not cultivated the society of their neighbors in the place, and Esther had no friends among them. There was a long succession of months during which things went on after this fashion. Very weary months to Esther. Indeed, months covered by so thick a gloom that part of the child's life consisted in the struggle to break it. Letters did not come frequently from Pitt, even to his father and mother. He wrote that it was difficult to get a vessel to take American letters at all, and that the chances were ten to one, if accepted, that they would never get to the hands they were intended for. American letters or American passengers were sometimes held to vitiate the neutrality of a vessel, and if chased she would be likely to throw them, that is, the former, overboard. Pitt was detained still in Lisbon by the difficulty of getting passports, as late as the middle of March, 
but expected then soon to sail for England. His passage was taken. So Mr. and Mrs. Dallas reported on one of their evening visits. They talked a great deal of politics at these visits, which sometimes interested Esther and sometimes bored her excessively. But this last bit of private news was brought one evening about the end of April. "'He has not gained much by his winter's work,' remarked the colonel. "'He might as well have studied this term at Yale.' "'He will not have lost his time,' said Mr. Dallas comfortably. "'He is there, that is one thing, and he is looking about him. "'And now he will have time to feel a little at home in England "'and make all his arrangements before his studies begin. "'It is very well as it is.' "'If you think so, it is,' said the colonel dryly. "'The next news was that Pitt had landed at Falmouth "'and was going by post-chaise to London in a day or two. "'He reported having just got Lord Byron's two last poems, "'The Corsair and The Bride of Abydos. "'Wished he could send them home, but that was not so easy. "'He had better send them home or send them anywhere,' said the colonel, "'and give his attention to Sophocles and Euclid.' Light poetry does not amount to anything. It is worse than waste of time. I don't want a man to be made of Greek and Latin, said Mrs. Dallas. Do you think only the ancients wrote what is worthy to be read, Colonel? They didn't write nonsense, my dear madam, and Byron does. Nonsense! Worse than nonsense. Won't do to inquire too strictly into what the old Greeks and Romans wrote, if folks say true remarked Mr. Dallas slyly. "'In the dead languages it won't do a young man so much harm,' said the colonel. "'I hope William will give himself now to his Greek, since you have afforded him such opportunity.' Mrs. Dallas's air, as she rose to take leave, was inimitably expressive of proud confidence and rejection of the question. Mr. Dallas laughed carelessly and said, as he shook the colonel's hand, "'No fear!' The next news they had came direct. Another letter from Pitt to the colonel, and, as before, it enclosed one for Esther. Esther ran away again to have the first reading and indulge herself in the first impressions of it, alone and free from question or observation. She even locked her door. This letter was written from London, and dated May 1814. My dear Queen Esther, I wish you were here, for we certainly would have some famous walks together. Do you know I am in London? And that means, in one of the most wonderful places in the world. You can have no idea what sort of a place it is, and no words I can write will tell you. I have not got over my own sense of astonishment and admiration yet. Indeed, it is growing, not lessening, and every time I go out, I come home more bewildered with what I have seen. Do you ask me why? In the first place, because it is so big. Next, because of the unimaginable throng of human beings of every grade and variety. Such a multitude of human lives crossing each other in an intraceable and interminable network. Intraceable to the human eye, but what a sight it must be to the eye that sees all. All these people, so many hundreds of thousands, acting and reacting upon one another's happiness, prosperity, goodness, and badness. Now, at such a place as Seaforth, people are left a good deal to their individuality, and are comparatively independent of one another. But here, I feel what a pressure and bondage men's lives draw round each other. It makes me catch my breath. 
you will not care about this however nor be able to understand me but another thing you would care for and delight in and that is the historical associations of london queen esther it is delightful you and i have looked at coins and read books together and looked at history so but here i seem to touch it i have been to-day to charing cross standing and wandering about and wondering at the things that have happened there ask your father to tell you about charing cross i could hardly come away if you ask me how i know so well what happened there i will tell you i have found an old uncle here you know i had one he lives just a little out of london or out of the thick of london in a place that is called kensington in a queer old house which however i like very much and that is filled with curiosities it is in a pleasant situation not far from one of the public parks though it is not called a park but garden and with one or two palaces and a number of noble mansions about it my uncle received me very hospitably and would have me come and make my home with him while i am in london that is nice for me and in many ways he is a character this old uncle of mine something of an antiquary a good deal of a hermit a little eccentric but stuffed with local knowledge and indeed with knowledge of many sorts i think he has taken a fancy to me somehow queen esther at any rate he is very kind he seems to like to go about with me and show me london and explain to me what london is he was there at charing cross with me holding forth on history and politics he's a great tory ask the colonel what that is and really i seemed to see the ages rolling before me as he talked and i looked at northumberland house and at the brazen statue of charles i if i had time i would tell you about them as mr strahan told me and yesterday i was in the house of commons and heard some great talking and to-morrow we are going to the tower i think if you were only here to go too we should have a first-rate sort of a time but i will try and tell you about it and talking of history mr strahan has some beautiful coins there is one of philip of macedon and two of alexander think of that queen esther and some exquisite gold pieces of tarentum and syracuse how your eyes would look at them well study up everything so that when we meet again we may talk up all the world i shall be very hard at work myself soon as soon as i go to oxford in the meantime i am rather hard at work here although to be sure the work is play this is a very miserable bit of a letter and nothing in it just because i have so much to say if i had time i would write it over but i have not time the next shall be better i am a great deal with mr strahan indoors as well as out i wish i could show you his house queen it is old and odd and pretty thick old walls little windows in deep recesses low ceilings and high ceilings for different parts of the house are unlike each other most beautiful dark oaken wainscoting carved deliciously and grown black with time and big hospitable chimney-pieces with fires of english soft coal some of the rooms are rather dark to me who am accustomed to the sun of america pouring in at a wealth of big windows but others are to me quite charming and this quaint old house is filled with treasures and curiosities mr strahan lives in it quite along with two servants a factotum of a housekeeper and another factotum of a manservant 
I must say I find it intelligible that he should take pleasure in having me with him. Goodbye for tonight. I'll write soon again. William Pitt Dallas. As on occasion of the former letter, Esther lingered long over the reading of this, her uneasiness not appeased by it at all, then at last went down to her father, to whom the uneasiness was quite unknown and unsuspected. I think William writes the longest letters to you, he remarked. What does he say this time? Esther read her letter aloud. Will has fallen on his feet, was the comment. What does he say to you, Papa? Not much, and yet a good deal. You may read it for yourself. Which Esther did eagerly. Pitt had told her father about his visit to the House of Commons. I had yesterday, he wrote, a rare pleasure, which you, my dear Colonel, would have appreciated. Mr. Strahan took me to the House of Commons, and I heard Mr. Canning, Mr. Whitbread, Mr. Wilberforce, Mr. Ponsonby, and others. On what question, do you think? Nothing less than the duty which lies upon England just at this moment, to use the advantage of her influence with her allies in Europe to get them to join with her in putting down the slave trade. It was a royal occasion, and the enjoyment of it quite beyond description. Today I have been standing at Charing Cross, looking at the statue of Charles I, and wondering at the world. My granduncle is a good Tory, and held forth eloquently as we stood there. Don't tell my mother. But privately, my dear Colonel, I seem to discover in myself traces of Whiggism. Whether it be nature, or your influence, or the air of America, that has caused it to grow, I know not. But there it is. My mother would be very seriously disturbed if she suspected the fact. As to my father, I really never discovered to my satisfaction what his politics are. To Mr. Strahan I listen reverently. It is not necessary for me to say to him all that comes into my head. But it came into my head today, as I stood gazing up at the equestrian statue at Charing Cross, that it would better become the English people to have John Hamden there than that miserable old trickster, Charles Stuart. Esther read and reread. Papa, she said at last, what is a Tory? It is a party name, my dear. It is given to a certain political party. You are not a Tory? No. If I had been, I should never have found my way here, the colonel said it with a sigh. Then I suppose you are a Whig. And are Mr. and Mrs. Dallas Tories? Humph. Will says his mother is. He ought to know. What is the difference, Papa? My dear, I don't know that you can understand. The names grew up in the old days when the Stuarts were trying to get all the power of the government into their own hands, and to leave none to the people. Those who stood by the king, through thick and thin, were called Tories. Those who tried to limit him and guard the people's liberties were Whigs. What queer names! Papa, are there Whigs and Tories in England now? What are called so? Are the kings still trying to get away the liberties of the people? No, my child, those are pretty well secured. And here we have no king at all. I don't see how you can be a Whig or Mrs. Dallas a Tory. There are always the two parties. One that sticks by the government and aims to strengthen its hands, right or wrong and the other that looks out for the liberties of the people and watches that they be not infringed or tampered with. 
Esther thought a while, but not exclusively over the political question. It might have occurred to an older person to wonder how William Pitt had got his name from parents who were both Tories. The fact was that here, as in many another case, money was the solution of the difficulty. A rich relation, who was also a radical, had promised to find legacy to the boy if he were given the name of the famous Whig statesman, and Mr. and Mrs. Dallas had swallowed the pill for help of the sugar. About this Esther knew nothing. Papa, she said, don't you think Pitt will get so fond of England that he will never want to come back? It would not be strange if he did. Is England so much better than America, Papa? It is England, my dear, the colonel said with an expression which meant she could not tell what. End of chapter 14 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona